All right, now's the time to buy Bitcoin, everyone. Just kidding. <laughs> We're here with our awesome guests. And of course, in episode 295, you're behind the scenes in the green room. We're going to do some quick introductions before we go live. So, Cindy, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? I am calling in from San Francisco, California, and we're going to talk about building and maintaining and selling a very powerful personal brand. Exactly. The way you have, which is amazing. Brian, what about you? What are we talking about today? And where are you dialing in from? Dialing in from Austin, Texas. So we'll be speaking about three of my favorite topics, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, ESG, and an ecosystem of equity. All in one. All right. Teresa, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Hi, I'm calling from Toronto, Canada. And today I'm going to be talking about a, a short film a documentary that tells a beautiful story about a woman and, and, the, and the positive in technology that can actually do in people's lives. Wow, that's amazing. So for all you guys listening, it's going to be an action-packed show. And of course, for our guests, uh, if you want to stay in the green room and catch up at the end, we'll definitely have some time for you as well. So with that, back to you, Hannah, and we can start the show. Okay. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them in the next hour. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the founder and CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. You'll find Ray on TV every week on television business and technology news, contributing on Fox Business, Bloomberg, Yahoo Finance, and CNBC. In my opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at all W-A-N-G-0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to the Shrub TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. When he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet as with this show. But it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? It's an honor for us to have one of the smartest CMOs in the business world, Teresa Barrera, CMO of Publicis Sapient. Teresa has spent more than 20 years in senior marketing roles. She started when she was 11. From 13 years at Accenture and CMO at Deloitte Consulting to her current position 
at CMOL Publisher Sapient. Teresa is known for embracing the unknown and operating with fearlessness and has a passion for mentorship and empowering women to bring their authentic selves to work. We're going to learn about that with this incredible film uh, that, that exhibits these incredible uh, skills. Teresa believes by being, her, their, uh, being uh, their authentic selves, women will have a greater impact on teams, companies, and most importantly, themselves. She's an excellent follow on Twitter at T-E-R-E-S-A-B-A-R-R-E-I-R-A. Welcome back, Teresa, to Disrupt TV. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. I actually, myself, I might have started when I was six working. My <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I thought eleven. Sorry, <laughs> six. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's wonderful, Teresa. I think one of the interesting things that is happening here is is really, I mean, you're doing something different. Like Publicis Sapien is a digital consultancy, and you know, we've been talking about all these negative aspects of tech, but. You're doing something different. You've got this exciting new initiative. Um, you call it Impact Films, and you've been partnering with award-winning producers like Academy Award-winning Ben uh, Proudfoot to create a film that showcases positive impacts on technology. So this fil first film is actually going to be debuted at the New Yorker Film New Yorker Festival, I think, next Friday. So congratulations. So let's start by telling us what is this project and why did you move in this direction uh, to really talk about the positive aspects of tech. Um, yes, the film is going to be viewed next Friday at the New York Film Festival. First, first, let me just give some context to the story because your viewers haven't seen the film. If you recall, during COVID, um, COVID caused a lot of people to leave their jobs. And as a result of that, it, 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 it caused a lot of financial risk and stress to people. And during that time, the federal government stepped in to provide billions of dollars to all states to assist yep. their residents who they, they were impacted. But by the time uh, the funding got distributed to the cities and to municipalities, I mean, they were overwhelmed by the number of people that showed up and laying up mm. to give assistance. And these, their systems, their, their technology systems, they were not equipped to, to process the funds quickly. So um, we worked with one of the cities in uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, Charlotte, to create a digital platform to help distribute the funds uh, to the hands of the people that need it in days versus months. Now, what the film does, it tells a beautiful story about a woman uh, named Kirsten. And Kirsten is a single mom of two, lives in an apartment with her two children. And the film focuses on her story because she was also impacted by COVID. And because of that, she lost her job. And because of losing her job, she felt delinquent on her rent. And as a result of that, she was being evicted. And she was just one day, one day, right, from being evicted and, and really being homeless with her two children. Mm -hmm. um, and if it wasn't for the digitization of the systems, she was not be able to get the rent assistance that she needed. But the beautiful thing about the film, though, is that we never talk about the technology. We never talked about the work. We really just focus on her story and her journey. And I, it's, and I think it's a beautiful story because it's really a story about Kristen, but it's really about her resilience, her bravery, and really her courage and hope. And if for me, you know, if that shows that the person, you know, the, they, the, the title of the film is uh, Never Done. And it really, it, it, for me, when you watch the film, it shows that also you can be a person, you can be a mother, and you're, you're, you know, your journey is never done. I love that. I love that. 
as technologists, all three of us know that when we talk about business transformation, it's never done. When we talk about growing careers and talent and enriching people's lives, it's never done. And, uh, and obviously, uh, when it comes to creativity and the boundless energy you have to tell powerful stories, it's never done. I guess you started when you were six, so you, it's been a lifelong journey. How did, you, how did you say, you know what, I'm going to ignore what all CMOs do with case studies and testimonials and press releases and all the boring stuff that we all do. And you said, I'm just going to create a film about a mom of two who is struggling, but she's never done with grit and persistence and optimism. How did that happen? Like, how, how does that happen? Yes. Um, it, 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 it was a risky decision. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, um, but to be honest, really all started, I actually, a year ago, sitting outside my window in my garden, I was pacing back and forth, talking to Alex, who's the head of my uh, content team, and we're brainstorming ideas. How do we bring emotion and humanity into mm -hmm. the work? Um, so we really want to humanize uh, digital transformation and really in, in bringing meaning to our work, how to make it real, to be, make it understandable. Because like, if you think of a company, right, we are a B2B, uh, B2B company and we work with large companies, Fortune 500 companies across many industries, right, from McDonald's to Walmart to Goldman Sachs. Um, and we help them transform their business digitally. But what I did not want to do, I did not want to talk about the work. Because frankly, that is the easy part. That's the easy part to do. You can write a case study and it's the easy to do. I wanted to focus on the impact of the work and not our impact on the business, these companies that we work do business with, the impact on people, real people, ordinary people. Because, you know, at the end of the day, right, when you think about transformations, like digital transformation, it is not about technology or tools or, or processes. It is about people. It is done by people, with people, and for people. So in that moment, we made the brave decision that we were going to create short uh, film stories talking about the positive impact on people. And we want to do it from focus, you know, from one person, um, just doing a story one person at a time. And, and talking about case studies, by the way, we already had a case study. And the case study talked about the 40,000 people that, that benefited from this work. Okay. And, I mean, it's an impressive number, but it's a number. It's not a story. You know, what's really exciting is you got to partner with uh, Ben Proudfoot. Yes. Right? And he's, I think, queen of basketball, right? That's uh, right. That. That's right. He so, won an Oscar for that. And by the way, and we didn't get, we started working with Ben before he got the Oscar. Ah, cool. <laughs> that's Ooh, cool. Look at that talent. That's amazing talent search there. Um, so tell us about that. What's that, what that's been like, right? And and why why Ben? Why did you choose Ben um, before you won the Oscar? Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, so when we made that decision that we wanted to tell stories focused on one person, that's what Ben does. He's a mm -hmm. master at telling a story from the eyes of one person. And I didn't know Ben, but Alex, we never worked with Ben before, uh, but Alex knew about his work. And so we reached out to him. And I, I tell you, uh, I mean, the co collaboration was great and it still is because we have two more films that we're doing with Ben. And I, I think the second one, we're gonna launch it from uh, the first quarter uh, next year. Uh, but to be honest, I said it was risky because in order for this collaboration to work, 
uh, we had to have mutual trust, right? I had to, to Ben had to trust me uh, that I was going to not interfere and uh, with the process, and I had to trust Ben with his vision and craft. Um, because to be honest, I kind of had to relinquish a lot of control. <laughs> and even more so for the next two, because he's now an Academy Award winner. <laughs> he's not going to tell him what to do, yeah. especially now. Hopefully um, you negotiated his fees for the next two. <laughs> That's right. But I think for me, what I had to learn really was to, I had to learn how to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, to really be okay with uncertainty and ambiguity. Because like Ben is a filmmaker. He's not like a, a, a traditional typical agency that you have a brief and you get reviews and you get to, to, to see the work. I we I had to like really let go of traditional way, ways of working and really dis disrupt the way we tell stories because what I did, okay, here's the risky part. I When we contacted Ben, uh, we said to him, listen, we want you to do this, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you a list, a list of names. And I told him, here, go find a story. Oh. And he did. But he couldn't come back and said to me, look, I went to look for a story, look really hard, and I couldn't find a story because there's no impact to be told. And I got to tell you, that would not have been a good career move for me. Oh, my. <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, but it, I, so that's what the part I said. It's been an in interesting part because, you know, again, the process is very different. I don't get to give feedback. I saw the film when it was done, and at the end, yes, but I don't get to influence the process. That's why I said that's the, this mutual trust that it has to exist. That's amazing. And, and, and for those of us who've led lines of business with board meetings and you know, uh, you know, financial reporting and, and budgets and, you know, letting go or being comfortable with the uncomfortable is kind of a superpower <laughs> that that many of us, uh, I just hosted a CMO roundtable at Dreamforce, CMOs of the biggest companies in the world. I don't think there was anybody in the room that had less than 10 billion in annual revenue. And we, we talked about empathy. We talked about pragmatic optimism. We talked about flexibility and resiliency. You talk about being uh, able to, you know, uh, co-create uh, and, and, and let go and be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Any other takeaways working with now an award-winning, Academy Award-winning storyteller? Uh, is there anything you learned about like the art and perhaps even the science of, of, of sharing emotional stories that are powerful and, and, and inspire us to do, to, to do more? Yeah. And, and just go back to your point, right? I mean, transformation is about disrupting yourself. That's at the end yeah. of the day. And I think you have to be any leader today in the world that we live, regardless of what you do, or a CMO, your CEO, a CFO, you have to be able to be comfortable with that because it's the only way forward. Right. Um, but to answer your question, in terms of learnings, I think the biggest learning for me has been um, doing this, this with Ben. Um, is about the power of telling, uh, the power of telling a story, but also the power of solving a problem by focusing on one person. Hmm. And what I learned is that you know we have a life can give us a lot of challenges, overwhelming challenges. But what I learned from this is that regardless how big or small the problem can be, it can be solved by focus on one person. Hmm. If you think of Ben, right, he has figured out how to create a, a great film 
by focusing on one person. And what I hope to do with this film is to figure out, solve a problem, how to bring humanity mm. into digital, into technology by focusing on one person. That's amazing. That is an incredible story. I mean, that that's really what we want to be able to do. Bring back, we want to humanize digital. We want to tell those authentic stories, right? And I want to walk the red carpet with you and see the film live. <laughs> It'll be a can too. Right? I mean, yeah. You are invited Friday at 830. Oh, that's awesome. But hey, but this is this is you know, we see this a lot in B2C marketing, right? And we don't see as much in B2B marketing. Um, is this a trend that you see is gonna pick up more as we see that shift? As, as we're trying to get to that level of authenticity and personal storytelling? I, you know, I believe it is. Look, um, B2C companies have been using emotive uh, storytelling in their marketing for a very long time, and it, it has been very effective. I think for business to business companies, they often uh, think of their customers as, um, as the organization versus the end user, right? Not the people that are using uh, their product or their service. And because of that, they tend to address their message and their marketing, not to the end user, not to the customer, the customer's customers, but to the organization. And I really believe this is a miss because, you know, ultimately this, whatever service or product these companies are offering, it is to benefit the end user, being an employee or being a customer. And, I, and as such, I think we should speak to the people that are consuming that product or their service not the people that are buying it. So I do believe actually that is a big uh, opportunity for these uh, B2B companies to expand their thinking and to focus their impact, not just on the business and the organizations, but the people. And that's what, I, that's what I'm doing uh, from our messaging, you know, and with this film and other things we do, and is how do we, you know, talk directly to people, not just to organizations. So uh, my final question, as I'm listening to you, just totally uh, in awe of, of what you're able to do, I'm reminded that, uh, you know, you've had an incredible career. You're considered one of the brightest CMOs in, 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 in the industry, which, yes, means that, no, which means that you have a sponsor, your CEO and the board that believes in you. You have customers and clients that believe in you. So you're an established person taking enormous risks, doing something incredibly unique and innovative. What advice do you have for CMOs that haven't had your amazing success, but they want to do something different? They want to disrupt themselves. They want to create beautiful content. Is there something they can do that can help build consensus and build energy and support in their company. Again, I don't want to dismiss the fact that you took a really big risk, but you're an amazing CMO. I suspect you can try anything new and you'll have amazing support because you keep winning. <laughs> uh, what is a young CMO early in their career? What can she do to help build this uh, humanistic approach to marketing? And I think goes back, look, I think you have to be you have to be able to, I think today, you have to look at the things, like we can look at marketing and we said, oh, this is the way we always done things. I don't believe that. I think we have to be able to disrupt those things. And one of the things I think for me, I have learned a lot is to bring people into my team. So for young seniors, surround yourself with people that are outside your industry. I have hired 
from very outside people in the industry, people that leave my content, they never worked in marketing. I have people that worked that with my PR and never worked in marketing or even a company. So you have to bring diversity of thought because what are you going to learn? It's for every company. Most of it, it's outside of your industry. So you got to bring this out, a lot of more outside end views. And that's the way you can move forward. Because if we always look to our competitors, I have a, 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 a saying that I say to my, my team, you never look to our competitors, mm. ever. Because you're not going to learn from your competitors. Look to your clients, look to the market. That's how you're going to move forward. So part of it is surround yourself with different diversity of thought, diversity of experience. And then be brave. You know, you have sometimes take risks. That is part of it. That's part of your journey. And sometimes the risks work, sometimes they don't work. And obviously, we all wanted to take calculated risks, but we have to be be comfortable uh, with some risk. I love this is amazing. Keep your nose to the ground. Focus on diversity of thought and experiences. And don't forget to take some risks. We're here with Teresa Barrera, CMO of Pulisus Sapient. And of course, down here on Disrupt TV, you should definitely check out the show on Friday. And of course, you can follow Twitter on her on Twitter at T-E-R-E-S-A-B-A-R-R-E-I-R-A. -E -E so, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you. You're great. My pleasure. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank you. Wow. Just uh, I, I guess I have to be in New York on Friday. Awesome, CMO. <laughs> we might not make the this first film, but I sure would love to make the second and third. Talk about the importance of diversity and someone who's been championing that through his entire career. Our next guest is Brian Reeves, Executive Vice President, Chief Belonging. I love that. Belonging. Diversity and Equity Officer at UKG. Brian, uh, in his role, leads the company's global belonging, diversity, and equity program, expanding existing initiatives while working to strengthen a culture built on trust. That's my company's number one core value. Fairness as an immigrant refugee. I love fairness as a word. <laughs> and, and equality. So every UKer <laughs> can thrive in every stage of their career. Prior to UKG, Brian served as Senior Vice President and Chief Diversity Inclusion Officer at Dell Technologies, another remarkable company. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian K. Reeves, R-E-A-V-E-S. Welcome, Brian, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Great to be here, both of you. Thank you, sir. Hey, we're excited to have you here. And, you know, this is a very, very interesting background. I mean, we had a chance to chat a couple of times, I think last time we were in Las Vegas. And uh, yeah, we, we want to know more about your journey from software development to diversity chief. And really, how does that change your perspective and inform your perspective in series of experiences or, you know, understanding policies that you're creating or more, so, more importantly, understanding kind of the minds of, you know, individuals that are working throughout your organization? Great, right? Yeah, normally when we see each other, it's in an elevator. Are you going up or down in Las Vegas? Are you right about that? Um, oh, no. Yeah. You know, what's, what, what's, what stays in Vegas stays in Vegas. Keep yeah, going. You're right. You're right. Um, so, yeah, I come from you know, very humble beginnings. I grew up in South Central LA in the 1960s. I've added my age there. I couldn't say I'm six years old uh, where I started there. Uh, where, where, quite honestly, life outcomes for young black men weren't great. Um, and at the same time, I, I was really inspired by my, my mom and my grandparents focusing me. And I really had special interest in civil, the civil rights movement and the amazing reality that we can put a human on the moon. So looking back, the intersection of those two topics were probably an indication of where I am now, sort of technology and, and certainly uh, human rights. Uh, but due to the love of my family, as I said before, and their investment in me, I was able to have a different outcome 
that than many of the people I grew up with and had the opportunity to attend UCLA, study math and computer science and begin a tech career at Xerox uh, Corp in the mid 80s. Uh, and, and the first part of this, for the first subsequent 30 plus years, I had the great privilege to participate in or lead software development teams around the world at large companies and startups in Silicon Valley, including my last engineering role where I led some of the next generation HANA-based innovation in the areas of sports, fashion, personal healthcare at SAP. Uh, but during that entire engineering arc of my journey, I had a passion for engaging in activities focused on creating opportunities for those from similar or humble beginnings like me, no matter where you were from, there are have and have nots. So during my time at SAP, those activities were recognized and seen as strategic by Bill McDermott. So in 2015, I was given the opportunity to formally pivot into a DEI leader role, as they called it there at SAP, within his office of the CEO. Um, uh, and my thought then and today is that the DEI and B topic, which I hope to get a chance to talk about the B, is a business imperative and important uh, to have, it's important to have DEIB leaders who approach the topic with the same operational rigor as a leader from the business, if you would. Uh, and that's how I, uh, I approach the topic. So in 2017, after one and a half years in the SAP role, I was given the great opportunity to join Dell Technologies, as you said, uh, and to work for Michael Dell, an amazing person, one of the, the greatest parts of my career. But uh, you fast forward to a couple of about uh, a year and a half ago, and I got this great role at, at UKG where I get to drive uh, both of my passions, not only DEIB thought leadership, but I get an opportunity to take and then thought, instantiate some of that thought leadership into product. So uh, I'm humbly, uh, you know, sort of in this role, and my goal is still to transform the lives of others in the role. That's a great, that's a great story. And what epic companies that you've been a part of uh, throughout your career. Um, but we've had, uh, we've, we've covered uh, DEI as a topic on our show dozens of times. Uh, my most memorable interview was with Frances Fry, who's uh, academic at Harvard. And she said, she, she said, I should come before D because if you're inclusive, eventually you'll have diversity in your, in your, in your culture and in your company. And, and that resonated with me. And again, I'm an immigrant, uh, so I, I so appreciate this country for giving my family and myself, my parents, an opportunity to rebuild um, our lives. Uh, so companies that demonstrated, organizations that demonstrated inclusion and diversity as part of their DNA have helped my family uh, in, in, in ways that I don't have the vocabulary to describe. But you're the first that have belonging in the title and I, I want to ask, how did that come about? And did you, did you, were there times where you felt like you were achieving success, but you didn't feel you belonged in, in the organization? A absolutely. Yeah. The B, you know, as I looked at it, and this, uh, you know, as uh, this topic has evolved, but first it was diversity and inclusion. And then, you know, the E with equity came in. But I thought the B was, is, is significant. And again, all of the concepts uh, of the DEI and B are important. Uh, and necessary, but without belonging. Belonging, you know, Bala, is that is, is individual. It's a personal sense of acceptance. Uh, I remember Verna Myers, and when she was in the role at Netflix, where she made the famous statement of diversity is being asked to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. But when I think about belonging and equity, I like to expand that. And I say diversity is being asked to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. But belonging is dancing to your favorite song. You know when you hear your jam. You won't even have to be asked to invite, be invited to the, the dance floor. You're there, right? 
Uh, and then equity is being, you know, they have the, having the ability to host the next party. All of us should have the ability to be the host because we're the convener. So that's what that thing is. And at UKG, we think of belonging every Ucrer as uniquely you, uniquely valued, where your difference, people will lean into that difference because that is valuable and honored within the company. So uh, like, like you said before, I don't think you can have inclusion, certainly uh, without uh, uh, belonging, but that is where you have that personal sense. And I think that is what accelerates people forward. Yeah, that's a no. great analogy. Great you know, analogy. And- so you've been here for over a year and a half now at UKG and, uh, you know, tell us how it's evolving. Right. And, and what, what's unique about the initiative you're building there? Because, you know, the company cultures have come together very well, uh, given how different they were. So, yeah, no, no, it is. And, and, I, and I applaud, uh, you know, sort of, you know, in any M&A activity, you bring companies together, especially, you know, companies like Kronos or like Ultimate Software, very, very powerful cultures, very positive cultures, but different. And when you bring those two things together, then you are asking people to lean into something that is different, that is yep, even greater yep. than the individual. So uh, UKG's tagline, is, uh, what I was impressed, there were two things that were compelling to me when I looked at the opportunity. One is the tagline is our purpose is people. And what I inferred by that is our people, our purpose is all people, uh, right? And that was very, very clear that if a company would lean into people, then we are a people company that that could be very strategic because the DEI and B topic is inexorably tied to people. Uh, and, and if we are able to unleash the power of people with belonging, uh, we're able to leverage their authentic and unique abilities to drive greater innovation, employee engagement, employee retention, all of those things and newer benefits to the top and bottom lines of a company. So that is the business imperative. So that was the first. And then, as I said earlier, as an engineer, still with that mindset and looking at this topic from that, that mindset and that lens, you know, we're the leading HCM, WFM, you know, sort of player in the world. Uh, and therefore, you know, it's relatively unique to be able to take this topic and instantiate it into the product platform. And that's what we're doing. So that allows me to, you know, sort of you know, sort of live in both of the worlds. I feel very comfortable uh, in, by instantiating that thought leadership and then helping our customers on their journey because we're all on a journey. And, and if we're successful, the world would be better for it. I can't imagine uh, a great work environment that doesn't celebrate belonging and diversity and equity and you, your, your, your acquisition of great place to work, you know, greatness, uh, I, I would assume amplifies uh, all the work that you're doing and you're championing because, again, how can you be great um, if, you, if you ignore these important qualities? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the, this whole process of the great, great place to work and how it's impact your roadmap, your vision, your ability to build, uh, you know, a great culture? It's incredible because if you think about great place to work, you know, uh, before the acquisition, you know, Michael Bush has, has been phenomenal uh, at, you know, sort of articulating to the world uh, what great looks like. And, you know, companies are lining up trying to certify themselves to be a great place to work. Uh, because that certification is so valuable. Um, so so that was that. And then, of course, we were on our journey, our purpose is people, inspiring every employee, supporting every business, uh, elevating uh, every workplace. When you put those two concepts together mm-hmm. to the degree that we have access to data and the best practices, proven practices that make companies great, 
Uh, and you merge that with, you know, our platform and our thought around human capital management and workforce management, you have the best of both worlds. Uh, and similarly to, to, as I said earlier, being able to instantiate whatever that, the certification logic in the product is a huge differentiator and allows us to drive uh, thought leadership and benchmarking, because that's what Great Place to Work does uh, and benchmarking so customers uh, and prospects and others know where they sit on their journey towards being a great place to work. So it's a perfect marriage. It's, it was a very, very strategic acquisition, and we're enduring all of the benefits uh, from it as we accelerate forward. Are you jumping out of bed on Mondays? Because it just sounds like you really love what you're doing. I do. It's the difference between a job and, and a career. I tell young folks all the time is, is passion, <laughs> right? As you know, we're looking forward and, and then seeing the results. I mean, this really matters. You know, I get to wake up every day and know and hope uh, and have the privilege of trying to accelerate the lives and careers and generational change uh, at the individual level. So it's it's, I it's magic. That. I love that. Ray, I want to have, have just one follow up because it's top of my head. When I think of the people that helped me feel a sense of belonging through my career, yeah. it, it wasn't my mentors, um, and I've had some great mentors. It was sponsors, uh, yeah. folks that were above the org chart, and they put their political and social uh, capital uh, on the line Absolutely. to put me in front of big decision makers to support budgets and, and resources and just give me a chance, like Teresa said, to, to disrupt myself, the company and experiment. So I, I, you know, I think it was Seth Godin who said, people are not afraid of failure, they're afraid of blame. So my sense of belonging came when a sponsor gave me safe space yeah. to do things that I loved. Um, how important is the role of sponsors and middle managers? Like how, when, we, when we promote someone and give them the awesome responsibility to manage people, how important is it to train that person to, and remind them that if you're not a champion of belonging and equity, and diversity, all the culture work that we're doing can can break. Uh, I, I just want your thoughts on sponsorships or who influenced you to feel like this is going to be my life's work. And, and that was the difference. I had sponsors as well. And I didn't know early on, you know, I used to mix and match. Like, well, isn't a mentor a sponsor? It's like, no, no. A sponsor is a person, to your point, Paula, who is, you're not in that room when that conversation happens and someone is, you know, sort of inquiring about an opportunity and that person leans in and says, hey, Brian Reeves is the person uh, who I'd like you to meet who can, can lean into that. Yeah. Uh, so it is it is critical. And quite honestly, for underrepresented groups, whether it's underrepresented mm -hmm. minorities or globally, you know, sort of gender, uh, they don't you know, we, we don't as as underrepresented groups have as many sponsors. And it's so mm -hmm. it is very, very, very critical. And that's one of our key performance indicators of our success is not the number of mentors someone has, but who is advocating those people very formally, not informally, but very formally. And what does that impact look like? So we measure that as one of the behavioral characteristics of success uh, in our DEIMB program. So you're absolutely right. Uh, and that autonomy that comes with that, uh, you know, the mastery, autonomy, purpose, Daniel Pink drive is, is, is right on, right on. When I read that book, it makes so much sense every day when I think about it. 
Are you well, writing he, a book? Are you are you going to write? I, a book? I would love to. Right, it's raise the uh, yeah, both of you. Let's do one together on this topic. Let's make it happen. Be a I do. Topic. I actually have an idea with you. I, I do want to write a book uh, with you. Um, I, I was going to ask you about. I'm this listening afterwards. to Brian. I'm like, this guy is a best-selling yeah. author. Like, he, he, well, like, everything he says makes sense to me. Sorry, go ahead. Brian. Yeah. Oh no, no. <laughs> I, I want to talk about the different levels of diversity at some point with you, right? Yeah. You know, just at the baseline, then a really shared experiences, and then really about values and how yeah. those all interplay. But you know what's more interesting is actually you guys DEIMB is just one part of your larger ESG initiatives, and I, you know, it's an area that we've been talking a lot about. We just hosted dinner for a number of ESG fifty winners in New York with uh, Doug Henschen. He's been driving our efforts there. But you have a you have an overall ESG report that goes bigger than that. You talk about climate change and waste and e waste on the environmental side. You talk about DEIMB here, but but talent and culture and satisfaction and volunteering. You also talk about governance, right, and business ethics and data protection and cybersecurity. All in one piece. So tell us more about that update to the report and what's what's in there. Uh, yeah, what's in interesting there. findings. Number so. one, we're committed to advancing you know our ESG strategy because we really feel a keen sense of responsibility to our, our stakeholders and the global community. Again, our purpose is people, all people. You know, our, our purpose drives us wide. Uh, that said, we know it's a journey, Ray. And as you said, all those areas. I mean, ESG means a lot of things to a lot of people, but all those areas can be very complex. And you have to hold yourself accountable. So our approach is a multi-year approach. Uh, you know, last year, our fiscal year, which ends today, magically, uh, uh, fiscal year 22 was really about building awareness about what we were doing around our current programs. We were doing a lot, but we had never put a wrapper and a lens on articulating it across four dimensions, communication and education, the operational framework, branding, and then reporting standards and data collection, which we think are key. So then driving into this next fiscal year, starting tomorrow, uh, we're really enhancing the alignment of our initiatives at UKG to industry standards and frameworks so that we all can, we can measure ourselves and others can benchmark us against the best of the best. Within the next fiscal year uh, of uh, October 23 would be really exploring areas on how we integrate our learnings into our products and services. And then once it's in that flywheel, then we have great impact and we're helping others accelerate. So a lot of excitement, it's a journey, but we're, but we're in it deeply. That's amazing. Uh, my final question to you, um, equal pay, equal work. Can you yeah. talk about the importance of uh, pay equity, why it matters to you personally, and then you know, even great places to work. My company is a great place to work. And six years ago, our head of people's success went to my founder and said, women at Salesforce are not paid the same for equal work. Yes. And my founder's first reaction was, no way. Best place to work. Number one fortune. Ford's great place. That can't be. They showed him the data. And now we've spent, I think, close to $20 million rectifying and by the way, it never ends because we acquire companies only to find that, nope, then they're doing the same. They have the same blind spots that we had at Salesforce. So you could be a great place to work and still not have pay equity. How, why is this so important to you? It is. Number one, I saw your founder in 60 minutes, and that was quite compelling. I keep yeah. going back to that. <laughs> That's right. Talk That's right. Uh, and, uh, it, was, it was quite you know, sort of uh, interesting. And and the thing about it is when you think about pay equity, and, and here's what I think the, the part, and we did this analysis, which we hope everyone will read with the Harvard Business Review Analytics Services team. And the thing is, is it's extremely complex and it's not just a tactical issue. From our belief set, 
it's about an ecosystem of equity. If you only think about equity of compensation, you're missing the fact that you also need equity of representation, equity of opportunity and equity of well-being in order to have that to, to address the systemic issues and to sustain uh, moving forward so you don't have pay inequities. And if you, there was one stat that jumped off the page when you read it was that in this mismatch where 74 percent of executives consider pay equity a moderate or high uh, priority, but only 49 percent of them reported that they have a pay equity plan in place, the operational rigor that will hold you accountable. Whereas the employees agree, 71% of them said, yes, pay equity is important, but only 41% of them reported that their companies have these pay equity plans wow. in place. Wow. And so that's a disjoint. You have to have the operational rigor. It has to be about the ecosystem of equity and the CEO. This has to be a CEO topic, not just a CR HRO. CEOs lean in like yours did. Things happen. If it's other levels, it won't happen. And Brian, there's no excuse, right? We all have payroll data. We all have job titles and descriptions. Like, I don't understand how anybody could could avoid this topic because if you're a data-driven company, uh, you have this information. You just need to have, like you said, someone at the top willing to do the right thing. Yeah. And it's a proxy to the value. Like, that's what, I mean, when people, when you pay, that's, that's the very thing that many people, sure, it's beyond this total compensation, but if you're not paying me equitably or fairly, then you're not valuing me. And if you don't value me, then I, I might as well not be here, which obviously triggers not long short term success for, for your innovation and or business uh, moving forward. So 100%. it all matters. 100%. So Ray, you're on mute. Ray, you're on mute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I definitely agree. So we're here with Brian Reeves, Executive Vice President, Chief Belonging, Diversity and Equity Officer at UKG. And you can follow him at Brian K. Reeves. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Future best-selling author. That there we are. Awesome. We had the talk. We had the talk. <laughs> that was, that was we'll awesome. See you, we'll see you live in a few weeks. That so. was awesome. Wow. Everything he said uh, is, is so resonates with me. Um, okay. This is where we bring what we call the cleanup hitter spot, where a guest comes and hits a grand slam. For those of you who are not familiar with baseball, I apologize for the analogy. Dr. Sidney McGovern, author of Sell Yourself, How to Create, Live, and Sell Powerful Personal Brand. Is there a bigger, more important thing today in this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy that we're, we're a part of? She's also the founder of Orange Leaf Consulting a top-rated speaker, best-selling author and consultant, Dr. Sidney, also known as the first lady of sales. <laughs> I love that. Is on a mission to empower people and companies to get what they want through sales. Hardest job in any company, sales. Uh, through engaging stories, humor, and even a little audience participation, Dr. Sidney helps people to realize that they have been selling their entire lives and they're good at it. Uh, Dr. Cindy's energy and drive inspires the audience to embrace their inner toddler. I love that beginner's mindset. And remember that they can sell and they can get what they want in work and in life using those skills they already have. You can follow Dr. Cindy on Twitter at First Lady of Sales. One, the number one, S-T-L-A-D-Y-O-F, Sales, S-A-L-E-S. Welcome, Dr. Cindy, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so excited to have you, Dr. Cindy. I think one of the interesting things here is really that connection that you're talking about. And, and the first part, you know, is really thinking about what was that connection between personal branding and sales? And then you realize why it's so important. But tell us why it's so important. You know, I had a chance to read your book. So tell us why it's so important and why that is the case. 
So you're selling yourself every day by selling your brand. And whether you realize it or not, you have a personal brand. And that's what I would <laughs> caution everyone. It's out there already. The jig is up. So. Alert. You have a personal <laughs> brand. Be careful. You've got it. And so part of where I think people sort of don't get ahead in their career sometimes or are not getting closer to reaching their goals is because they're not recognizing that they're already selling, but maybe they're selling the wrong thing. So there's a huge connection between your personal brand and your proactive behaviors to make sure people understand what your superpowers are, how you can impact the organization, how you can impact the bottom line. And I think it's really important that people embrace that toddler inside so they can sell themselves. That's awesome. That's I was a former CMO before I the chief marketing officer. He's still recovering. Yeah, <laughs> recovering. An accidental CMO. So so you know, I, I I really had no business running marketing for for this big company, but but I was given a chance. <laughs> and uh, when people would ask me about, you know, what's brand, what, what is the definition of brand, I would say, you know, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Um, and more and more, the room is the web. Uh, so in this digital first world, uh, you know, your personal brand is your digital footprint. Plus, as Ray would say, your digital exhaust, those unintended consequences of things we leave behind. I have a 19, 16 and 12 year old children. And I constantly remind the college and the high schooler who are, you know, living their world life online that, that be careful of those breadcrumbs you leave behind, the photos, the videos, the uh, you know, the, the hashtag, this, that, and the other. Uh, uh, so, so and, and, and they don't listen to that, but someday they will. <laughs> but what, my question to you is, why is it important to sell your brand both professionally and personally, especially in this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy that, that we're a part of? So we forget that we are interconnected on a daily basis in everything that we do. And very good advice, Dad, for your children on. I hope they're listening. I hope they're listening. Yes, your dad is right. Your dad is right. Absolutely. Listen to him. But it's true because we're forgetting that we are leaving those digital breadcrumbs. And you can't take that back. I mean, let's remember that the web first came around. We used to call it publishing to the web. So we are still doing that. But it's super important that your brand is consistent because when you're selling, every good salesperson knows you can't make a sale without trust. So it's really about building trust and credibility within your brand. That's you. You are the product in this instance. And so if your online persona flies in the face of your business persona or vice versa, or people can't rectify where your brand is, it's really hard to build that trust. And then it's really hard for them to advocate for you. And so nobody does this life alone. We all need a little help, right? Yeah. And the advocacy is a really huge piece. I mean, if people aren't advocating for you, then right, there's no trust. You get that feedback loop that actually comes back. So, but hey, without giving away all the secrets, what are the three critical components of a successful brand and, and, and what, what people should be thinking about as they're building out their brand? So I am a hyper planner just as a human. <laughs> so and I am I am aware of the addiction. So I love a to-do list, but it does start with creating a plan. And mm. I think you have to really craft your personal brand. And it should be quite intentional if you really are looking at the impact you're leaving on the world. And this is something that people just don't usually do. We don't sit back unless you're a celebrity and you're like, I'm gonna really craft a brand. This is gonna be my persona online and my persona at work. But you actually do in some smaller ways when you put on whatever you're going to wear to the office, mm -hmm. when you dress up, when you're going to give a presentation. Those are all things where you're branding, you're creating the brand, the impression that you want to leave on others. So that's a first step is really being intentional around that. And then the second piece is you got to live it. And mm -hmm. a lot of people think, well, my brand is speaking for itself. Maybe. 
I mean, is your work speaking for itself? Is it speaking loud enough? Did you get the promotion that you wanted? Did you get the raise that you wanted? Well, if you didn't, what are you living? What are you showing? And I always laugh when people say, well, I'm such a hard worker. They should recognize this. If you're a hard worker and that's your brand, you're going to attract more hard work. Like that's not, <laughs> that's not what you're trying to sell people on. So that brings me to the third piece, which is selling. And yeah. When I got ready to write this book, it was very funny because I thought, surely somebody wrote this. Like, surely there's a personal branding book out there. But a lot, and they're great books, but they bring you to the creation of the brand. The part that we forget is we have to advocate for ourselves. And we throw the phrase, sell yourself out all day, every day. Mm -hmm. But we forget the operative word is sell. So mm -hmm. you've got to follow the steps of a sales professional to sell your brand appropriately so that you have the impact you want to make on the world. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, I, I um, yeah, I mean, Ray and I, we, 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 we give speeches and we, we're active on social. We have a podcast. And so, you know, all along, consciously, subconsciously, I think we're working on our on our brand. Um, you mentioned the word trust. Uh, trust in my company is the number one core value. And, and I, I, I always I try to deeply think about, you know, how do you maintain trust? How do you establish and maintain trust? My favorite definition of trust is Rachel Botsman, who's a lecturer at Oxford. She said trust is competence plus character. And she broke down competence into capability and reliability. I've never met a great sales professional that didn't show uh, capability and reliability. So I, I think that's great. And then the character part, she broke into integrity and benevolence. And when I think about personal branding and those four elements, uh, capability, reliability, integrity, and benevolence, I think the benevolence speaks to me louder than the others because benevolence is, you know, what are you motivated by? You know, there's a fine line between manipulating and inspiring and that line is your intention. So as you're selling, what is your intention? Is it to educate? Is it to inspire? Is it to leave people better than when you found them? Because if you have the right intentions, if the benevolence piece is solid, I think you can actually build your brand successfully. Can, can you talk about you know, what is the most important ingredient to you as, the, as a hyper planner? And I love that in terms of what are the muscles you need to develop to, to sell in a way such that people don't feel like they're being sold to. They actually feel like you're guiding them to a better place. So it's funny because I'm you you introduced me as a first lady of sales and that's how I'm known now, but I never wanted to be in sales. <laughs> so hard. It's hard. It's, kind, it's kind of an interesting story. And and I was a consultant and I got put into a sales role. Long story short, my boss at the time was like, Oh, if you learn to sell, it'll change your life. And my 20-something-year-old self was like, whatever, like that's so lame. <laughs> Here I am many decades later. I also started when Great I was six. Boss. Great boss. So, and, and he was right. And so what was amazing about that is when people start to sell their brand and they build that trust and that benevolence thing, I had to find a way to sell that felt right to me. And my definition mm. of sales was pushy. My definition of sales was kind of that used car sales approach that is sort of a caricature of a salesperson, truthfully, because that's like a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of sales professionals out there. But that's what we think of. When we think of sales, we think of pushy, high pressure tactics. We are selling and being sold to every single day. We just don't call it that. We call it helping. We call it convincing. We call it inspiring. We call it motivating. So I couldn't agree with you more that it is that benevolence piece. And I come from that place of gratitude of I'm grateful for the opportunity to sell you something. And if this isn't a match, totally fine with that because you're walking away 
literally as a walking commercial for me, that you're going to go tell somebody else that story. That's true. It's so true. We see this every day. Word of mouth is important. Um, one of the big things in big other areas is really what's happening in the workplace and the job hunt today. And how does brand tie back to our current climate? Uh, and more importantly, you know, what's going on? We got great resignation, great regret. We got quiet quitting, like all these things that happen. There are two jobs for every applicant. The latest jobs report came out and we realized that people are doing actually pretty good. So what is up and how do you actually apply this, you know, as people are actually looking to move up? move somewhere else, try something new. What do you suggest? So that is actually why I wrote this book was The Great Resignation. That was the whole catalyst for this. I saw the world shifting and I saw people changing careers and doing complete pivots and following passion projects instead of, um, you know, a nine to five. I saw them creating portfolio careers versus a career path. So I saw them doing it and I was like, I have to help. And so it was the great resignation and the great regret or remorse and then the great reset. I believe next is the great rebrand because whether you're selling to another human, it's B2B, I'm a B2B person as well. We're still selling to human beings at the end of the day. And like you said with your first guest today, Tressa, like we have to realize the impact we're making on them. And I don't care what you're selling if I don't trust you first. (laughs) And I think people forget that. And especially now in a more hybrid digital age of virtual selling, People have to remember, you got to connect with the human before they're going to connect with your product. And that's literally why I wrote this book. Well, Vala, you and I heard it here first, the great rebrand. I mean, hey, it's coming. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, 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 I think that uh, there is a renegotiation happening between employer and employee. And in order to effectively negotiate your dream job, your, where you want to be, what you want to do, uh, you know, success is liking yourself, liking the work you do and the way you do it. Um, and more and more people have discovered in the pandemic in the last two and a half years that maybe they weren't in the place where they felt a sense of belonging. Maybe they didn't have equity. Maybe maybe that work-life integration is a little bit easier when you love what you do. <laughs> because, you know, at the end of the day, we've been, you know, for, for the last two and a half years for me, there was no difference between a Tuesday and a Sunday. It was just, you know, it's it, and it's because I love what I do. Um, now I can say that, um, and, and I don't think I've ever said this to anyone, um, but we're amongst friends, I suppose. I've never had a resume ever. Uh, when I was in grad school, I was recruited very aggressively to, you know, for my first full-time job. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, they offered, the offer was unbelievable <laughs> at the time. So they didn't even want a resume. I was just doing grad work. And, uh, and, and, so, and then at Salesforce seven years ago, when they asked for my resume, I had a pit in my stomach because I didn't have one. And I had no intentions of creating one. Uh, and they said, no problem. We, 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 we can find out everything we need about you. Of course, I live on a digital platform uh, uh, more than maybe anybody, you know. So, so. I think about my entire career, 20 plus years, I've been trying to build a brand in a way that was accessible, like, you know, blogging, social book, podcast. So if somebody wanted to know my thoughts, my accomplishments, they, they could easily find out. Thank goodness for the web. <laughs> so, so my question is, do you think that as we get better at developing our brands, is the traditional resume dead? Uh, even your LinkedIn profile, like, Will people just know about your character and your competence and your benevolence because of your digital footprint? And they're going to rely less on these same methods that our grandparents were hired, which is like a piece of paper or a piece of paper in a digital format on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. <laughs> what, 
What are your thoughts about the future of hiring and, and the dying resume, in my opinion? I mean, you know, my crystal ball is on back order, but if I were if I were looking at it from that sense, what I would say is it's been dead, honestly. Yeah, because if we look at how people have gotten their jobs, even in the last decade, and I would even venture to say in the last 15 years, yeah. it's word of mouth. And truthfully, if you get to a job interview, and you're relying on the resumes, even as the interviewer, all the resumes look the same. If the candidates <laughs> made it through rounds one through five, they all are identical. So it has not like that's not going to have any bearing on who you hire. You have to sell yourself in that interview. And I think that yeah. having those advocates in the world and watching the way that we interact as humans, I honestly believe nobody nobody does this life alone. And so it is about relying on those other humans to tell our story for us. And the facts are the facts. Like, yes, you know, you grow productivity by a thousand and one percent and you had the best sales and, you know, 12 quarters in a row. Exactly. That's what got you in the door. That's what got you to the interview. Now you have to sell yourself and you have to convince me that you are a part of this culture. You are going to be an amazing advocate of this organization, that you are a strong individual contributor and you are better than literally all the other five people that are exactly like you. There you go. Miller Hyman for your personal brand. We'll see how that works. <laughs> totally. totally. No, no. Dr. Sydney's spot on. Spot on. Yeah. You can get to the dance. You can get invited to the dance. But once you're on the floor, you got to do your thing. So. <laughs> yeah, I better see some moves. Is all I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I better see some moves. <laughs> right, right, right. It's Where like, are you on moves? Well, hey, the book came out just a few days ago, and it's always really exciting to actually see that happen. And you're like day two on book and book sales. Um, where would you like to be six months from now? What would you like to be talking about now? Or will you be like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm tired of talking about this book. We're going to try something else. We're going to pitch something else. Uh, and what will that be? So six months from now, my hope is, and my goal is that people are actually doing what I'm teaching in the book, that they're mm. truly selling themselves, because I believe that we've shifted. And it's interesting, your your other guests today, it was so fascinating to be watching, because I think that the power dynamic has shifted in organizations. And it's no longer us trying to be sameness. It's actually us belonging and bringing people in for their individual superpowers is what I call them in the book. And I want people to be vocal about that. I want people to step forward and share their powers because I think we're stronger for it. If every individual brings their best self to work, the company is stronger. And so the companies that are investing in DEI and and really bringing in people who have a different thought process Mm -hmm. and who have different backgrounds. and, And like Teresa said, like, if you hire somebody from the same industry, you're talking into an echo chamber. Like, what's the yeah. point? Yeah. So I really believe that it's creating that space where everybody feels like they can be heard, should be heard, and they know the story to tell about themselves. That's my goal. That's awesome. Hey, we're really excited to have you here. That's Cindy awesome. McGovern, Dr. Cindy, author of Sell Yourself. You can follow on Twitter at First Lady of Sales. That's one S-T, Lady of Sales. And you can catch her new book on Amazon. And of course, it just came out two days ago. So thanks for being here. Happy Friday. We'll see you in the green room. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thank you. You're terrific. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Was that an hour? <laughs> it felt like four minutes. Uh, I mean, Teresa, uh, 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 Brian, Dr. Dr. Sidney, just, just. Okay, well, uh, we may have ended with the first lady of sales, but I'm here with the first gentleman of influence. <laughs> can you, can you, can you do us a favor and just recap uh, the last hour? Uh, extraordinary disruption uh, ethos that's built on inclusiveness, belonging, equity, and and of course the power of of of, of your brand. 
and that and that all of us are being watched and listened to at all times. So it's important for us to be mindful of how we, uh, you know, uh, share our values and our thoughts and our feelings uh, with others. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, we call this all part of the great refactoring and something is happening in terms of our business models, the way we work, what's happening in the larger picture, like the large macro forces and dynamic. And, and one of those uh, themes is really, uh, you know, centralization to decentralization. We're seeing individuality become much more important. We see why it's important to have a personal brand. We see it's why it's important as you think about the concepts around belonging, but you also see why it's important, why it's authenticity is important and, and our need to focus on, you know, the positive aspects of technology and where things are headed, those are all significant areas we have to be talking about. And I think each one of these are, you know, this is the, the shift that's going to happen for quite some time. And so if you're not ready, you're not focused on that, if you're hiring and you're not uh, attuned to that, um, you're going to miss out on a lot of great talent. You're going to miss out a lot of great opportunities to innovate and build the next, you know, next product, the next offering, the next experience, right, or, or the next organization. And so I think, you know, all this, you know, we've, we've had some great personal leadership lessons here, organizational leadership lessons mm -hmm. here, and of course, understanding where that positive impact can be. Like, what can we do to, to create a positive impact on technology? So, Val, you and I have an opportunity to do that as well. And, and you know, like, like I said to you like a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago, I mean, it's really weird. It's like we walk into these rooms now and we're like, we're the grownups. And people are looking at us and I'm like, what? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Ray, I, I was... Uh... I had, the, I had the privilege of hosting, again, 40,000 people last week at our annual conference. And it's amazing how many people look at you and I uh, to share our thoughts, our, our beliefs, um, our projects, um, our, our mistakes, our lessons learned. Um, and uh, it's an awesome responsibility. Uh, it's events like last week. It's events like in three weeks at your Constellation Connect Enterprise. I'm going to be in a room from October 24th, 27th at Half Moon Bay uh, at your conference, Constellation Connect Enterprise 2022. And I anticipate I'll be with 300 CXOs. And these are the biggest budget owning, biggest trailblazers who are, as Steve Jobs used to say, putting a dent in the universe. Yep, yep. And, and so my imposter syndrome is gonna kick in because I'm gonna look to my left, I'm gonna look to my right, I'm like, they're running billion-dollar businesses, and they're asking me for advice. <laughs> and uh, but but that's the beauty of it. Uh, if, if you can contribute in any way, even if it's a small, you know, uh, do it. Uh, part, part of building your personal brand is being generous with your learnings. Generous yeah. with I tried this, and these are the mistakes I made. So hopefully you avoid them. Uh, I find so many of the discussions I'm having about running business is me like sitting on a couch sharing my mistakes. Uh, but surprisingly, uh, people are still making them. <laughs> so, so anyway, it's, uh, it's, and this is, I think, why we do this show. We do this show so yes. we can stay teaching. We do this show to share people, share yeah. with folks. Exactly. exactly. Who do we have? Episode 296, it's coming up. Yeah, we're getting closer and closer to episode 300. Uh, it's going to happen uh, shortly after your conference. Next week, we have Roger Primo, General Manager, Strategy and Corporate Development at a small company called IBM. <laughs> we have Perry Hewitt, uh, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at Data.org, but she's known as the first Chief Digital Officer ever hired in ever. higher education where she was the CDO at Harvard University 10 years ago. And you have Keith Cratch, chairman and co-founder of Cratch Institute for Tech Diplomacy at Purdue. He's a former U.S. Undersecretary of State, and he's the 2022 Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Whew. 
Wow. <laughs> we've interviewed <laughs> over 900 guests. I don't believe we've ever we're had these a... guests on our show. I don't <laughs> yeah. know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay, we're going to break. We only have 20 minutes with a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. Oh, my God. Uh, maybe we'll do the show longer next week. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, get your popcorn, fasten your seatbelts, because next week's show is going to be as good as this week's show. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you for watching. Happy Friday, everyone. Cheers. Oh. <laughs>